0: You are listening to the podcast of Grace Bible Church Ann Arbor. We are the rescued people of God joining His Great Restoration Project. More information, including sermons in this series, can be found at gracea2.org. Thanks so much for tuning in. When it comes to building habits, intentional decisions matter. The way we move, the way we do things intentionally matters when it comes to building our lives the way we want them to be. Author James Clear tells the story of a family who took the opportunity to build their lives with intention to its absolute extreme. László Polgar was a Hungarian scientist, and after studying educational psychology and studying the lives of, of a bunch of brilliant people throughout history, he came to the conclusion that that success in this area, in the area of genius, was a matter of effort, not talent. These, these people are made, not born, he argued. And to prove his point, he decided to have children himself. Now, just as a side note, this is not a great reason to have kids. As, a, as an educational psychology experiment, I think you might wanna pass on, on that, but we can, we can chat about that later. The premise was this, is that he would raise his children to be totally immersed in one area of expertise. From the very beginning, every moment of their lives would be focused on, any guesses, chess. He chose chess to be this thing that his family would be immersed in. And for the Polgar kids, and they had three girls, their whole world was chess. Their living room was decorated with famous scenes and famous chess sets. Um, There was a whole wall of books in their living room that was dedicated just to the study of chess. Um, They were homeschooled in every aspect that they studied from advanced mathematics to different foreign languages were all built with the idea of helping them succeed at playing chess. Their parents actually maintained like an index and a file system of like every match they ever played and actually like dossiers on future potential opponents. It's this incredible like surrounding and these girls grew up in, in that environment. But maybe the craziest thing of all is that it actually kind of worked. Susan, who was the oldest sister, began playing chess at four years old. The youngest daughter, Judith, could beat her father by the time she was five. Sophia, their middle daughter, became the sixth best woman's player in the world. Susan became the second best player by age 17, and Judith, is and, and and was looked at as as the most successful women's chess player in all of history, the youngest ever at the time to become a grandmaster. Now, no one go buy a chessboard for their kids. I mean, or do, or whatever you decide. But but this example, even though it's a bit out there, shows the power of an intentional environment. It shows the power of a world that is that is created for the purpose of, of learning and developing an identity. It's what can happen when we make intentional decisions with what is all around us. As Christians, our habits must be intentional. What we are surrounded by and surround ourselves with is one of the primary factors in shaping who we become as the people of God. Today, we continue in our Habits of Grace series, where we're looking at what it means to attune the habits and rhythms of our lives to the places where God calls us to grow and develop. And today, we're looking at what it means to build a habit centered on one of the most fundamental missions Jesus laid out for us, building the habit of evangelism, or building the habit of the go, of going So what is evangelism? Let's start there. What is evangelism? If you've been around the church for a while, this word may come with some history um, or some some baggage. Evangelism comes from the, the Greek word evangeliso, which means basically to proclaim the good news. In English, we take it to mean the action and the activity of sharing the message of the gospel with people who do not know Jesus. Or maybe put more simply, evangelism means go and tell. Go and tell a roommate. Go and tell an unreached people group. Go and tell a relative. Go and tell the halls of Congress. Go and tell. This is what evangelism means. And to Jesus, this was the central command He left for His followers. That the people of God would be those who go and tell what Jesus has done. Today, I want us to take a moment to look full on at what Jesus has asked us to do in this arena. At the central mission of the believer in this world and how we can build some habits that help us build toward that call. If you have your Bible um, or or it's it's around you, we're going to be in Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. Now Jesus has come to the end of His ministry on earth, His his ministry is complete, He's healed and done miracles, He has forgiven sin, He's traveled all over the Judean countryside, in towns and in villages, beside tombs and graveyards, preaching and teaching the message of the new kingdom that comes in Him to the world. And eventually that ministry leads Him to Jerusalem where He'll come face to face with the wrath of the religious authorities and and the greatest empire maybe in world history, um, the Romans. And in this ultimate act of power, he doesn't conquer Rome or overthrow the Jewish leaders, but instead walks willingly to the cross that he might conquer death. And in this most significant moment in human history, three days later, he steps out of the grave. The Apostle Paul will later talk about it, quoting a line of poetry from the Old Testament where he says, oh death, Where is your sting? The sting of death is gone. Jesus has conquered that death. And it's here that we pick up the story. This is Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. "'Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, "'baptizing them in the name of the Father "'and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, "'teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. "'And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age.'" Jesus tells His disciples, He tells the eleven after Judas' betrayal, that He will go ahead of them to Galilee, about a hundred miles north of Jerusalem, give or take, and for them to come and meet Him there. And they go and reach the place that Jesus said for them to go, and they see him, and he comes toward them. And it, it's, the Bible is so interesting. It takes some, a moment here to say that some were still doubting, that in this moment, they see Jesus, this risen Lord. The last time they saw him was this tortured body dying on a cross, and now they see him standing before them. And even then, some still doubted. A lot of scholars look at that as the doubt that comes from, like, I can't believe my eyes. I can't actually trust my senses right now because something that doesn't make any sense is occurring in, in front of me. And Jesus came to them, it says. This is verse 18. Came to them and said, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. By walking from that grave, Jesus steps out and into an authority. The authority here is exousia. It's the power to act, the power to make. In fact, through a Latin root, it's kind of tangentially connected to the word we use for existence in, in today's world um, in English. It's not just the power that I can lift something, but it's the power in the widest sense, power in supporting all reality and all life. It's this power that Jesus has. And in that power, he turns to give a command. The next word, verse 19, he says, therefore, Therefore, because of this power won over sin and death, this power that removes the barrier between God and man created by sin, because I have won this victory, therefore, this is what I have for you. This is verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. In my authority, Jesus says, I command you to go and make disciples. Now, we could spend six weeks talking about this sentence. It's probably one of the most studied passages in all of Scripture because of its implications for the church, for our responsibility to go to the nations, for our personal lives. There's so much here in in this section. But for today, as we try to see about building the important habit of evangelism in our lives, we're going to just look quickly at two parts of this passage. So the first is this grammar deep dive. So You're going to have to bear with me on, on this. The word go here at the beginning of this section is go, therefore, and make disciples um, is what scholars call a participle of attendant circumstance. It's this word that you have to say when you describe it in just a touch of a British accent. I don't know, maybe that's, that's just me. It's a participle of attendant circumstance. And what that means basically is that this verb go takes on the full weight of the instruction that comes after it. So when, a, when, a, when something is a participle of a tenant circumstance, there's a command that's coming after it that is gonna take the full weight of that. Um, think of it like this, go and clean your room, a parent says. Stop and get in the car, right? It's not just a matter of going, it's not just a matter of stopping, There's something else that has to be done. Stop what you're doing and go get in the car. Go from what you're doing right now and go clean your room. There's something connected that is going to be the greater call, the thing that actually completes um, this thing. Maybe another way to think about it is, is reaching a goal, right? Like finishing a race. To finish a race, you have to start the race, right? But the goal itself is not complete until you finish it. And that's kind of what's happening here in this moment. This go is pointing toward this this second piece. It is the first step, this going, what we would call evangelism, is the first step in this overall concept, this overall call that Jesus says, to make disciples. They're called to go out. The followers of Jesus are called to go out in the goal of making disciples. Making disciples is the central verb of this whole section. It's the central command Jesus gives to his followers and therefore to you and me to make disciples. One scholar tries to phrase it a little better for us to grab it. He says, It's make disciples, it's discipleize. We are called to discipleize as we interact with, with the world. Folks, it's really hard for us to overstate this one. Jesus is saying that the mission of his people must be in the gospel entering the lives and hearts of men and women everywhere, of all nations, of people all over the world. That is the fundamental, central business of the people of God. That is where and who we must be. We are leading and carrying those people through the act of the gospel going out and walking alongside them as they grow deeper and deeper in their relationship with their Creator. That is our call to make disciples. The church was created for this. We exist to be a light in intentional action and intentional words that proclaims consistently that the King has come. The King has come to save all who would come to Him. Today, salvation can enter your house. Now maybe you're thinking, Reagan, I get all this. That's, that's why I'm here. I get the role of the church. It's why this place exists. It's why I'm in, it's why I'm a part. And you're right, that is why we're here. That's why the church, the church is there. But it's not just the role of the church, the writ large, the capital C, the building, the group of us to proclaim the gospel. It's also your role. It's also my role. This is, this is a really interesting... In this study, I was blown away by, by this piece of the passage here. The word go here, that attendant participle that we talked about before, is actually a derivative of the word poryoamahi, which means literally go on your way. It's this idea of going going on your way, like taking a journey or, or crossing a river. But don't miss this. The version of the Greek word is written in the personal form. It's a personal, one-on-one call to action. It's not just a collective, it's not would somebody please, it's you do this. Think of it this way, um, growing up my dad might yell from the garage, hey, can somebody come help me with this? Hey, somebody come help me with this. Now whether it's the groceries, whether it's helping clean something up, whether it's if you know Jim Sims, it's moving 1100 boxes of random Christmas stuff in and around the garage, whatever, whatever it is. But when he calls for a help like that, hey, can someone please help me? He doesn't really care who it is. He doesn't care if it's me, or my sister, or my mom. Knowing my dad, he probably doesn't care if it's the neighbor next door who walks over and helps him. At the end of the day, he's just asking for another set of hands, for somebody to come help him in what he's doing. But imagine if instead of that, instead of that, can someone please help me? My dad walks into the room, puts his hand on my shoulder, and says, Reagan, I need you to help me with something. First of all, I will be absolutely convinced that I did something wrong. Or maybe more rightly, I'm going to be thinking immediately about, I know all the things that I've done wrong. I wonder which one of them my dad found out about. But the very next thing I will do is be following after and be responding is to get up and do what he asked. Because he didn't just ask for anyone to help. He asked for me. That's what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 28. He's not looking just to the group as a whole, Saying, you all need to help me with this new kingdom project. He's not just speaking to the collective. He's stepping into the circle of those he loves. He's stepping into this circle of people, and he's saying, each of you, each of us needs to follow down this road. He's saying, I need you, Peter. I need you, John. I need you, Reagan. I need you, Chris, Jason, Andrea, Taylor, Beth. I need you to go and make disciples. This is a personal call. Again, I picture Jesus stepping into the circle of these men who have come a hundred miles at the promise that their Savior, who they thought was dead, is alive. And they see Him, and He walks toward them. And He steps into this circle of people with their mouths open, wondering how could this possibly be. And one by one, He catches each eye. And He says, I need you to go. I need you to go and make disciples. I need you to step out in this ministry, in this mission that I have given you. I need you to to step in this way. Death is no more. The resurrection has come. And I need you to go and tell the world. We have been called personally to go and tell everyone we come in contact with that death no longer has the final say. Put another way, we exist and have been commanded to show Jesus as beautiful to the world. This is our command from our Savior. It's direct, it's intentional, and we must follow. But it can be hard in a world where everyone is evangelizing, where everyone is proclaiming the good news about their viewpoint. one pastor was, was talking about this, and he said, we can't forget that the whole world evangelizes. We're not the only one. Everyone is trying to convince and coerce people to their opinion. Individuals, companies, relatives, friends, corporations, governments, all these places are doing their best to create users, to create customers, to bring people to their view, to bring people onto their side, to convince people that, that they are right, to join a certain point of view and a certain vision of reality. And in this co- climate of constant proclaiming, the church, and if we're honest, each of us are often strangely silent. In the midst of the chaos, the one people who have been given the true words of life, that death no longer has the final word, we struggle to speak. Ty asked an important question a couple of weeks ago as we talked about building the, the habits process. He asked, can we be honest with where we are? And I'm going to ask us to do that today. Can we be honest with where we are in evangelism? Can we be honest with where we are, with, with, with who we are at the moment in terms of this mission God has called us to? For most of us, honesty would reveal that we rarely talk to anyone about the gospel, much less follow the call Jesus lays out, which seems to be that we're to proclaim not just to someone, but to everyone, the message that he has come. Do we really ever share our faith? Does the good news for those around us ever reach the forefront of our minds, much less the actual level of our voices? If we're honest, I think we struggle partially because we wanna be comfortable. Telling someone with kindness and love that we believe the path they are on leads to destruction is just flat out awkward. Um, this is the hardest part for Reagan. It, this is my battle. I don't ever wanna be the weird guy. I don't ever wanna be the joke. I wanna be part of the circle. I wanna look at as awesome and great. And my popularity can take a hit when I start telling people about the need and brokenness brokenness in their lives. Because I, and because we want to stay comfortable and to not be awkward, to not deal with derision or be looked at as weird, we often stay silent. If we're honest, we also struggle with being cavalier. We struggle because we can treat this like it's not actually that big a deal. Deep down, we don't share because we don't think that sharing is really necessary. We're just willing to kind of float with, uh, you know, it'll work its way out kind of perspective. God will get them. It'll be fine. And whether it's our own misunderstanding of the gospel, whether it's bad theology or just a general ambivalence, it leads us to floating by the very people about which Jesus looked us in the eye and said, you have to go. Paul was careful to say, only those who call in the name of Jesus will be saved. And then he goes on in Romans 10 to talk about how will anyone hear about Jesus without a preacher? How will anyone hear if no one goes and tells, if no one shares? Jesus chose us to be his messengers, to carry his word and the spirit within us to those in need. And if we're honest, we often struggle because we're callous. We struggle because the soft heart we're to have for those who are in need hardens over time as we spend year after year around broken people. In the deepest areas of our hearts, the deepest area of my heart, the areas we don't like to bring out at church or bring out in front of the in-laws, we think there are people who will just never be God people. That person, that dude will never follow God. She has gone too far. Maybe it's somebody who's actively hurt you, a relationship, a family member, maybe it's a boss or a coworker, an advisor, or maybe a lab mate. Deep down, you're certain God won't reach them. Deep down, God's not going to reach them. We've become callous. We've become hardened to the reality that God wants a person as much as He wants anyone, as much as He wanted you. This is where it can be hard. You and I may not think of any of these things at all. Honestly, we may not think that in, in these terms. You know, if, if somebody were to say one of these sentences, you're being callous or you're being comfortable or whatever, it wouldn't even register with you. But deep down, maybe our lives actually do look that way. We do actually look like we're living our lives in these categories. I mentioned earlier that I want to stay, um, that I struggle with being comfort, comfortable, that I struggle with, with that idea of comfort. The truth is I struggle with all these areas. Um, I often miss opportunities because I figure another will come around. I avoid a conversation because it's awkward or maybe I don't want to deal with a certain somebody. I miss these pitches all the time, including some ones that led to some guilt for years in, in my life. I had a buddy in college. Um, we were really close, um, and, and kind of he had dealt with by the end of graduation, starting to deal with some addiction and stuff, and, and we kind of grew apart as we moved moved elsewhere, but kind of stayed connected a little bit on, on Facebook. And a couple of years he reached after he reached out to talk, um, he was still dealing with some stuff and, and reached out to talk. And, you know, I just kind of said, you know, like any conversation, I can get to it, right? And uh, a couple weeks passed, and, and we get the note that, that he passed away. And as, as I think about that, as I, as I process with that, it kind of hits me that I was supposed to talk with him, and I let that pitch go by. Now, I don't relate that story to challenge or, or frankly, to start some guilty feeling in, in your heart, but to say this is something we all struggle with. Often we miss opportunities. Missing opportunities is part of our brokenness as humans. We, we miss those, those opportunities. And there can be the possibility of a ton of guilt. And sometimes that's appropriate. We, we have truly and directly been tasked with reaching the world. But this command from Jesus is not about guilt. We have to see this as the gift that it truly is. It's not about guilt, but instead it's, it's a gift. The gift is that God is in control. That He holds each of us and each person in His hand. And I believe with everything that I am that He is faithful to make Himself known to this world. So for us, instead of guilt, by His mercy in our own lives, we are free to see our opportunity to share as a gift. A gift of joy that we get to be a part of, or some small part of what God is doing by raising a sinner to new life. We also get the gift that we're still here on earth. We're still here. There are opportunities in front of us. There are opportunities around us. This gift of, of God covering and of God giving us these opportunities, this ability to, to, to be a part. I'm sure there's somebody in your life who for, for whom the joy was theirs that they communicated the gospel to you and you followed Jesus. Maybe it's a grandparent like for my wife, maybe it's a, a you know a school a teacher, a Sunday school teacher like for me in the basement of Allentown Baptist Church back in back in PA um, to a to a group of second grade boys who were just staring at the wall. Maybe that's what it was. Maybe it was somebody like that. Whoever it is in your life, that person received joy and that same promise is there to you. That's First John chapter 1, verse four, sharing this so that our joy may be complete. You are the preferred method of God for reaching the world. He chose you as the messenger for the people in your life, as the ambassador of a coming kingdom into a world that he is bringing new life. So this brings us to our habits question. How do we build the habits of a messenger within who we are? How do we build the habit of go, the habit of living our commission? When it comes to sharing the gospel, there's a bunch of habits that are beautiful and important things we can add Um, to remind us, to challenge us, to help us be more intentional with those in our lives. But there's one place that I promise will help you as you start to think through what it means to be more intentional in this area. In order to live a life where we're sharing the good news consistently, where it's central to who we are, we have to build the habit of listening. We have to build the habit of listening. First, we must learn to listen to the Holy Spirit. The catalysts to to truly speaking life to those around us is the Holy Spirit working in the world, working in front of us, working behind us, working through us as He indwells every believer. The Holy Spirit is active in the evangelism game. He's active in our ability to share. And every day as He's working in those, we have to learn to listen. The battle is not whether the Spirit will speak, but whether we will listen to His prompting. So just a couple of ways here, really practical ways that we can learn to listen to the Holy Spirit in our lives. The first one is this, we have to learn to build silence into our day. We have to learn to build silence, to build the opportunity to listen in, into our day. In our modern world, in the busyness of our lives with kids and families and work and responsibilities and all the things that are there, it can be so easy to just roll on. It can be so easy to just keep going and not have any space at all where it's quiet, where a voice could interject, where a voice could, could speak. It leaves no space for that still small voice, as talked about in Moses' life. We can start this by building small, intentional moments of silence into our lives building small intentional moments. Pastor Adam is actually fantastic at this. Some people are gifted, and I am not one of those. So my encouragement is to start by picking a small but specific time or space. One of our team here at the church uses the time in the shower. No podcasts, no music, no nothing, but that is specifically trying to quiet thoughts so that, that, that he can hear what, what the Holy Spirit has, has to say. One of my go-tos is the drive home from the gym. I try to go to the gym as consistently as I can and just the action of getting back in the car and not reaching for the podcast, not reaching for the radio, not reaching for the music, but instead saying, no, I'm going to take this drive across town to just be silent, try to quiet my thoughts and hear what the Lord has has to say. Whatever it is for you, pick a small specific time, start that time by intentionally asking the Holy Spirit to speak. And I promise you that habit will grow and you'll see the fruit and, and start to hear. The second way is is an interesting one. Um, We can learn to listen to the Holy Spirit by actually learning our own voice, by actually learning what what we sound like. This may seem like a weird one, and I'm not saying find your true self or anything like that. Um, But St. Augustine has this famous quote from the Confessions where he says, let me know myself and know you more. And there's some truth in this, that there's something about us learning who we are in Christ, learning deeper where our thoughts, where our motivations, where our perspectives come from that allows us to then better hear when a voice isn't ours. Almost by this action of comparison, to be able to hear a voice that's like, that's not a thought I would have. That's not something that comes from me. That's something God honoring and I should pursue that. That's something that, that, that comes from, from without. The more I know what I sound like, the more I know when a voice is, is not mine. This is a, a battle, capital B, for an extrovert like me, right? To, to keep the voices and, and actually shut my own voice off. My wife is an introvert, and for, for Tay, she has a way clearer picture of what she's thinking at, well, any time. Way clearer picture of what's going on inside of her. And because of that, it can be easier to hear, oh, that's something else. Oh, there's something else going, going on. A simple way to practice this is to learn to ask questions of our thoughts. So when something pops in, ask the question, is that me? or is it God? Is that God honoring or is it not? Because if it's God honoring, it comes from the Lord. That's His voice. That's that speak. And learning to listen and discern that voice as it happens. The other thing with the Holy Spirit for us to to listen on. So, So this idea of building in silence so we can hear. This idea of learning our own voice so that we can start to discern the voice of the Holy Spirit more clearly. The last one is preparing our hearts to act. We will hear the Holy Spirit. If you ask the Holy Spirit to move and to speak into your life, He will. The Holy Spirit will speak, will act. The question is, will we? When we hear that voice, when we hear that prompting, will we respond? We can prepare our hearts ahead of time to say, God, when you show me that that is the voice of the Holy Spirit, I will respond. I will not wait. I will respond now distractions and responsibilities are always waiting. When we hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, we should act immediately, respond. Again, it may not be a big thing, it may be a small thing, but just start preparing your heart to be willing to act when when the time comes. So one way we can grow in evangelism is to learn to listen to the Holy Spirit. The second way that we're kind of looking at in listening, the second way in listening is that we must learn to not only listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit, but also learn to listen more closely to those around us. We must learn to listen more closely to those around us. Some of us get so carried away with the task and the need to be sharing the gospel, this spiritual conversation that we're having, that we can often fail to listen to the actual person across from us. We can fail to actually hear what they're doing, to actually hear where they're coming from. Now for others, it may be busyness or distraction that keeps us from truly hearing, We end up missing where they're struggling, where they're placing their hopes and dreams, what's happening in their lives. And just listening for those things can be a doorway to spiritual conversations. So a couple ways to challenge yourself in this, to build that habit. First, be present in your conversations. Be present in your conversations. This is a simple thing, but truly listening to others means we need to be truly present. Fight the urge to glance at that phone, fight the urge to glance at that watch, to to let your your mind wander, or to, to even at times be planning that next statement instead of listening to the person who's talking. Be present. And in that, you will not only hear and learn more about who a person is, but there's also a beautiful way in which we can communicate the worth of a fellow image bearer by actually listening, by actually hearing, by actually interacting with what someone says. Be present in your conversations. Second, build consistent rhythms build consistent rhythms i heard a pastor say once that when if he was in a waiter section more than one time it was no longer an accident he was there in hopes that spiritual conversations would occur in a world where we're going a million miles an hour um, being consistent can be uh, weirdly difficult in today's world oh my lunch is an hour later oh on and on and some of this we can't control with, with This Is There. I heard Andy Crouch on a podcast the other day who was talking about the difference between a male person and an Amazon driver when it comes to the consistent presence they are and we are in their lives. A male driver you see every day who's dropping off, who's picking up, who's there. It's the same person on that route. But at Amazon, it's, it's an algorithm. You may never see that person again. And so how that changes the way we interact, it's, it's random. Where we can, we should try to meet with the same people. Making disciples is a process over time and keeping our rhythms simpler and more intentional gives us more opportunities to meet the same folks and start intentional conversations. Gyms, coffee shops, lunch spots, break rooms, playgrounds, they all become places where God can use our consistent presence and intentional conversations in mighty ways. We be consistent where we can, try to to hone our rhythms so when we go get that cup of coffee, when we go to that lunch spot, when we go to that break room, we're there at similar times in similar places. One of the interesting ways to do this is picking off peak times, times where you might have more time to talk to a barista, to talk to somebody who is in a store, or or whatever it is, that that relationship can foster and, and build over time. Pastor John Tyson often teaches that there is no spiritual formation without spiritual repetition. What we perform over and over and over again in our lives builds us into the people that we are. Now whether it's a keystroke or a jump shot or a chess move, our habits, our little habits, make us who we are. And when it comes to growing into a people who take the challenge of Jesus seriously in our lives, Little daily and little hourly habits become the way in which God can shape us. Folks, you are the preferred method of God for reaching the world. You are no backup plan. You are who God chose. Let us become people together who live into that reality. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the opportunity we have, God, to partner with you in this thing called evangelism. To partner with you in this first step of making disciples as we step down the road of seeing people come to know you. And God, we admit that we are, we're we're we struggle here. We're far too flippant, we're far too callous, we're far we struggle, God, in, in this reality. Help us to be more intentional. Help us to, to, to make those intentional decisions. In fact, God, I pray specifically for every person um, in our church, God, every person who watches this, every person who interacts. I pray that the Holy Spirit will become more clear to them, that your voice through the Spirit would land in their lives in a new way, that there will be a voice they don't recognize that they have to follow happen daily in their lives, that they would, prompting them to talk to people, prompting us to interact. God, I ask for specifically that grace and that mercy today. We love you, Father. We trust you. Thank you for the opportunity we have and help us to follow you in this mission more intentionally.